Section 23 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4 Charles, Louis, and Parliament. Part 2. Upon these three women, the treasure of the country was squandered in wanton profusion. The supplies voted by Parliament, the subsidies of Louis, ran like water through their hands. Pensions, patents, monopolies, crown lands, reversions of lucrative posts were showered upon them and their bastards. Louise had before long, besides casual gifts, an annual income of forty thousand pounds, and it is computed that in sixteen eighty one the enormous sum of one hundred and thirty six thousand pounds passed through her hands. It was clear that the empire of the older woman over Charles's affections had gone, but he had been too long her slave to relegate her to insignificance or poverty, and he dared not allow her rancorous tongue to be unbridled. In August 1670 she was created a duchess and her children were ennobled. Wealth was given her as much as her hands could hold, the farmers of the customs have signed and sealed ten thousand pounds a year more to the duchess of cleveland who has likewise near ten thousand pounds a year out of the new farm of the county excise of beer and ale five thousand pounds a year out of the post office and they say the reversion of all places in the customs house the green wax and indeed what not all promotions spiritual and temporal pass under her cognizance the privy purse was shaken into her lap and the irish treasury was plundered for her charles actually gave her a grant of the phoenix park and the design was abandoned only when essex the lord lieutenant one of the few honest men who held office protested against this outrage with petitionary vehemence as one of the unseemliest things i have ever known a thing so indecent offering however to find concealed lands of as good a value as the park or to induce the irish parliament to give a small tax to reprieve it the idea of a tax being raised upon a whole nation to satisfy the harlot's needs is as edifying as the sight of dignitaries of the church seeking promotion at her hands we are says hallam in one of his few moments of irony much indebted to the memory of barbara duchess of cleveland louise duchess of portsmouth and mrs eleanor gwynne we owe a tribute of gratitude to the mays the killigrews the chiffinches and the grammonts they played a serviceable part in ridding the kingdom of its besotted loyalty they saved our forefathers from the star chamber and the high commission court they laboured in their vocation against standing armies and corruption they pressed forward the great ultimate security of English freedom, the expulsion of the House of Stuart. It is difficult to associate with these scenes of extravagance and effrontery the self-control, the serious purposes, and the austere reticence which distinguished William of Orange from childhood. In the late autumn of 1670, the prince paid a visit to England when the court was apparently thinking of nothing but Newmarket with the first suggestion of future marriage with Mary, the eldest daughter of James. Evelyn describes him as having a manly, courageous, wise countenance, resembling his mother and the Duke of Gloucester. 
a very personable and hopeful prince, says Rearsby. From him, as from everyone else, Charles managed to extract sport. He made him drink very hard one night at a supper given by the Duke of Buckingham. The prince did not naturally love it, but being once entered, was more frolic and merry than the rest of the company. Amongst other expressions of it, he broke the windows of the chamber of the maids of honour, and had got into some of their apartments, had they not been timely rescued. I suppose, adds Rearsby, his mistress did not less approve of him for that vigour. By his prorogation in the spring of 1671, Charles had set himself free from the control of Parliament in order, as Marvel put it, that the architects of our ruin might be so long free from their busy and odious inspection. The manner in which he used his liberty led to the first great crisis of his reign. We have seen from his letters to Henrietta in what light he regarded his ministers. They were merely the exponents of his personal will, without initiative and without any collective responsibility or any necessary harmony of opinion. It had been the custom to form within the Privy Council a small committee or cabal, a term at least as old as the reign of James I, to which were referred not only foreign affairs, but other matters of importance and secrecy. This committee represented the Crown, neither existing nor ceasing to exist, with any direct reference to Parliament and people. Each member held his place purely at the King's will, he gave his advice, but his duty then was to support whatever decision the king might adopt. Satisfy yourself, said Arlington in 1672, that you do your duty of serving the king according to his direction. It was, in fact, the antithesis of the modern cabinet. The logical sequence of this aspect of ministerial responsibility to the king alone was that the minister should not suffer for his obedience and in 1679 we find Danby taking up with respect to his own impeachment the position that in no case ought a minister of state to be made a sacrifice of state to the will of the people. The doctrine under which Buckingham had been attacked and Strafford had been struck down was explicitly denied. The cabal at the time of the Treaty of Dover consisted of Clifford, Arlington, Buckingham, Ashley, and Lauderdale though Bridgman, Ormond, Rupert, and others were at times included. Among these five, there was, besides the guilty knowledge of one or other of the treaties of Dover, but one bond of union. Buckingham hated Arlington. Arlington was jealous of Clifford. Clifford was bitterly opposed to Ashley, and Lauderdale had no English responsibility at all. But all of them, though from widely different motives, were in favour of toleration. Of Arlington, astute and useful, with the very pedantic carriage of a true penman, and of Buckingham, flashy and vain, much has already been heard. Of the other three, men in a far higher plane, some notice must here be given. Sir Thomas Clifford was perhaps the most picturesque figure of the cabal, a valiant, incorrupt gentleman, ambitious, not covetous, passionate, a most constant sincere friend, says Evelyn, boisterous, overbearing, and dangerous are Bolingbroke's epithets, an ardent Catholic in sympathies, if not by actual conversion, 
he was as ardent an advocate of an uncontrolled monarchy. He saw salvation for the state only in the combination of religious freedom and royal despotism. So irritated was he at the idea of parliamentary control that he told Charles that it was better to pay dependence to a great and generous king than to five hundred of his own insolent subjects. And in judging the king, such an utterance as this, coming from an Englishman of ancient traditions, deserves attention. Clifford's temper was vehement, his eloquence striking, his personal courage conspicuous. The story is well known how during the former war, when on a visit to Arlington at Euston and Suffolk, he and Ormond's son, Ossery, hearing the guns off Harwich, mounted their horses in haste, galloped to the coast, and put off in an open boat to join the fleet and serve as volunteers through one of the bloodiest days in English naval warfare. Although a poor man and although willing to make the fullest use of the corruption of others, his own hands were clean of bribes, and his life was remarkably pure. His horoscope foretold him fame and fortune but an early death. He answered that he did not shrink from an early death, if before he died he might witness the triumph of the Catholic Church. Antony Ashley Cooper, Lord Ashley, had been in the forefront of political life since childhood. In the days of the Commonwealth he had striven for religious tolerance against military government, and after the protector's death had assisted energetically to break down the despotism of the army. In spite of his present complicity in Charles's counsels, he was still a keen upholder of parliamentary rule. He was violently anti-Catholic, because, as he expressed it, popery and slavery go ever like two sisters, hand in hand. But he had been a supporter of every attempt to secure toleration for Protestant dissent since the Restoration, and in the Constitution which Locke drew up at his request for the new colony of Carolina, this was a leading feature. He had established a reputation for business power and tact, and although he never affected to censure the prevailing private and public immorality, he shunned debauchery in his own person, and his career like Clifford's was free from any well-established charge of personal corruption. Small and slight in stature and of delicate health, he had a soul as ambitious and fiery as that of Clifford himself and it was not until the end of his career that his keen political foresight gave way under the excitement of faction and the harassments of ill-health. But although he possessed an intuitive perception of those causes which had a great future before them, his conduct was liable to be determined at any moment by the resolve to ride upon the crest of the political wave, and while he was always formidable by reason of his ready and incisive eloquence, his unceasing activity and his skill in party warfare, which in its modern form he may be said to have originated, he is far more often spoken of by other politicians with distrust than with admiration or respect. John Maitland, Earl and afterwards Duke of Lauderdale, held a position so distinct that he deserves a fuller notice. He can scarcely be regarded, for many years after the Restoration, as an English politician at all, and while his colleagues of the cabal were occupied in manipulating votes of the House of Commons and in overreaching one another, he was ruling a nation. 
the foundation of his close intimacy with charles was probably laid down when he brought the terms of the engagers to the downs in sixteen forty nine it survived the nine years of exile after worcester and in april sixteen sixty charles signed himself as he did twenty years later your most affectionate friend but his fortune was not secured until he obtained the secretaryship for scotland a post which gave him constant access to the king's person and afforded opportunities which he was quick to improve from that vantage ground he overthrew the blundering middleton and his drunken administration observed and at the fitting moment brushed away the ambitious schemes of the duke of rothes and james sharp and in october sixteen sixty nine went down to scotland as high commissioner with far-reaching designs which he carried out with remarkable success his methods were simple and efficacious he had in past years made himself agreeable to charles he now made himself indispensable so long as the king chose to busy himself with governing he posed merely as the devoted servant of his will to whom his commands were he assured him above all human laws when charles tired he relieved him of his burden for scotch business he was as useful as clarendon for english and unlike clarendon had no scruples about paying court to the royal mistresses he had a brutal humour that was to charles's liking in drunkenness and filthy lewdness he could participate as freely as sedley and rochester his buffoonery was as entertaining as buckingham's he was a master of strong and caustic language and his wit though clumsy was pungent charles loved to have scholars about him lauderdale was at home in latin italian french and hebrew it was soon noticed that my lord lauderdale is never from the king's ear nor counsel and that he is a most cunning fellow to be ill-affected to the kirk had meant political outlawry and lauderdale's career had therefore been up to the restoration a carefully arranged hypocrisy a veil of decency had been thrown over his earlier life and he had acquired a complete mastery of the covenanting tongue but as the comrade of charles he became notorious for the grossest forms of vice there is a french proverb jeune ermite vieux diable to robert bailey he had been a pious nobleman a gracious youth by the time at which we have arrived he had become according to the sorrowful remonstrance of richard baxter that most terrible of all things a dirty old man crippled as he was at the outset in fortune and with signal disadvantages of person lauderdale possessed in an eminent degree the qualities best suited to the wear and tear of that strange time he was of a rougher and more robust type than his english colleagues he had strength of will coolness courage watchfulness readiness of resource and perception of the right moment at which to strike his blows he chose his agents and his tools with discernment he knew he said how to make use of a knave as well as another and he discarded them when they had served his turn as passion or policy dictated he was willing to take any oaths such had been the discipline of the covenant a cartload of them if necessary a bold and unabashed liar he was as eloquent against what he called damned insipid lies as hotspur was against women's oaths 
such was the man who for fifteen years exercised an irresponsible dominion over scotland as to what happened there in the way of good or bad government charles did not appear to have cared at all so long as he was not seriously troubled he was indeed fond of saying that he understood scotch affairs better than any one about him and lauderdale sedulously flattered this boast but charles remembered scotland only with disgust and he interfered with his viceroy no more than an oriental despot interferes with a pasha of a distant province who knows no law but his master's will and his own enrichment in october sixteen sixty nine however as we have said lauderdale was sent to scotland with a distinct mission which had an important bearing upon the king's wider designs in england there charles found himself bound hand and foot by the church thwarted and controlled by parliament and unable to raise a troop of soldiers without arousing the keenest jealousy lauderdale's business was to do for him in scotland what could not be done at home and his success was complete by a clever and audacious stroke he secured an alteration of the articles which made the parliament a mere registry of the royal will it was then easy to carry the act of supremacy whereby the church of scotland was robbed of the least shade of independence and finally he created by act of parliament an army of twenty-two thousand men who were bound to march when and whither the king pleased within his dominions in a word wrote arlington to him your grace hath played your part well nothing but the proverb la mariée est trop belle can be set against it the brilliant correspondence between lauderdale and robert more whose intimacy with charles has been already mentioned and by whose appointment as deputary secretary during his absence lauderdale preserved his hold upon his master is deeply interesting although the notices of the king's habits and ways of speech are unfortunately too much bound up with their context to be inserted charles's participation in the scientific movements of the time is illustrated by the fact that many of more's letters describe conversations in the royal laboratory we feel from these letters how pleasant must have been the hours there spent with the king how shrewd with all his vagabond habits charles was in business and how active and penetrating was his mind how clearly he saw through the intrigues and jealousies which surrounded him how bright was his talk how cheery his companionship how cleverly he went through disagreeable work which had to be done how resolute he was to do nothing disagreeable that he could avoid or postpone end of section twenty three